All right, we are back. Um, the Mexican Revolution is over <laughs> in terms of our chronology, but I wanted to come back, uh, as promised, just to talk about um, U.S., Britain, and Germany in the Mexican Revolution and their interventions, because uh, there is a book by Pancho Villa's biographer, this guy Friedrich Katz, uh, Austrian-born, uh, lived in Mexico, and then I think was a prof in the U.S. He was the Mexicanist uh, at some big univer university of Chicago until he died in 2010. So uh, because we have this book, I figured we should probably tell some of these stories. Also, since we're talking about the crisis of, of World War One uh, and these players, there are a lot of moves that they made. And in fact, Katz's uh, thesis is that this is like the first time that you had different powers intervening with different factions of uh, the rebel, or not the first time. He said they they kind of followed what they did in Cuba to with great success. Like he, he kind of argues that the U.S. was able to kind of manipulate the Cuban revolution or benefit from the Cuban uh, independence movement and uh, and the Spanish-American War, Philippines okay. kind of seize, you know, seize all this territory and stuff. So they were trying to do that in Mexico. I think there's another story here, which is uh, underestimating <clears throat> Mexico at every turn. Uh, and everybody, the Brit uh, less so the British, the British seem to be the, the least inclined to underestimate colonials. Uh, but the Americans and Germans... You know, they just seem to have expected the Mexicans to do whatever they were told or be fooled easily or whatever. And it just didn't happen. I don't know that the British, uh, you know, didn't underestimate the Mexicans. I think they played it the way they did for fear of offending the Americans. Ah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, exactly. So let's start with Britain then. So Britain's interest, I think, especially at this time, is oil. Um, mm -hmm. They know that Mexico has a lot of it, um, but they, for the most part, they want to do their business uh, under the American umbrella. They respect the Monroe Doctrine. They've been uh, they've been put on notice. <laughs> Venezuela, yeah. <laughs> and they uh, and they try not to, and they try in their in their interaction with uh, Mexican politicians, they're pretty uh, they're pretty honest about it. They they don't they don't give anybody any hope that if Mexico gets into any trouble with the U.S. that they can call. They're very like, don't call us, <laughs> you know, mm. <laughs> if there's a problem, don't call us to help you negotiate. Don't call us for military help. Don't call us at all. We're here to make money. Uh, if there's any problem, we're gonna take the U.S. side. Um, so they were, uh, they had a good contact and a good friendship with Huerta. Uh, remember the guy who was the first, uh, guy after, um, Madero. Madero to be like a, like a dictator. He, he had the support of the Western powers, uh, and he was trying to be closer business-wise to Britain and, uh, and, his counterpart or you know the interlocutor was this guy sir francis strong i guess s-t-o strong but with an strong, e yeah oh it's strong so the e so it's just like strong so strong was replaced uh recalled actually 
by Sir Lionel Carden. And Lionel Carden is a big business uh, man himself. He's a member of the ruling class. He was uh, a close friend of Porfirio Diaz, consul general for 15 years of that period. And he's considered an anti-American for, <laughs> you know, for what that's worth. Um, he uh, he doesn't trust the Americans. He wants what's, what they call the open door policy, right? So the imperialists have this, this slogan in the beginning of the 20th century. It's especially important in China and East Asia. But the idea is any rights that one imperialist extracts, the other imperialists all extract, right? Mm-hmm. So that's like, Lionel Cardin uh, is very upset because he doesn't think the Americans are upholding the open door policy, even for business in um, in Mexico. So um, (laughs) uh, the there's also a lot of contempt for Mexicans. Um, You know, one of the British envoys, a guy named Thurston, T-H-U-R-S-T-A-N, he says what Mexico needs more than anything is a government of white men. Um, but the British aren't unique on that one, right? The Germans are also very racially contemptuous. Uh, the German minister Hinze says at this time that the so-called Mexican people is made up of an aggregation of Indian tribes themselves, to some extent hostile to one another, of various ethnological origins, roughly 12 million, a dreary, dull, sluggish mass, uninterested in work or activity. In addition, Spanish and Indian mestizos, some with considerable black admixture, roughly 3 million. There are practically no purely white Mexicans, aside from some naturalized Germans and declining numbers of other Europeans. The mestizos have inherited, as is typical with bastard races, the vices, but not the virtues of the races which produce them, which is particularly apparent here because of the addition of black blood. So, so there. The... The previous minister before Hinze, there's Edmund von Haking. Uh, he was there from 1898 to 1902. And his wife, uh, which Katz says his wife expresses very similar views. Yeah, I think you can reliably assume that his wife's views are similar to his own. Um, and his wife wrote in her diary, the teeming bestial mass of humanity that one sees here or in China kills the last shred of any belief I might still have in immortality. But confronted with this mass of people who are nauseating and scarcely more elevating than the lowest of beasts, the thought of a possible afterlife can only be the basis for renewed horror. She also called a foreign minister, Mariscal, a little Indian ape man. It never occurred to any of these people to just stay home, I guess, eh? That's interesting. Losing my religion. (laughs) Just go home. Go home. Germany's nice. Yeah, but I also like the the idea that she's losing her her religion over this. Yeah. yeah, just just the sight of Mexicans teeming bestial masses of Mexicans. Um, so that's that's uh, I, I realize I talked a lot about Germany <laughs> and their views uh, in under Britain, but Britain really is you know it's like Lionel Carden, personal connections to the Mexican really class, oil and deference to America. <clears throat> then there's yeah. Japan. Uh, Japan has, interestingly, a lot of Japanese immigration to Latin America in the early 20th century. So there's lots of Japanese people just going to Brazil, going to Mexico. And and these are the two big, you know, the biggest countries, right? Mexico and Brazil are, are 
big and and lots of Japanese people go there. And Japanese people in Mexico are are a source of uh, worry for the U.S. Right. Um, so Katz writes the increase in Japanese immigration to Mexico in June and July 1907 gave new life to rumors of an imminent Japanese invasion of the United States through Mexico. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. So in July, uh, one of the German um, informants, uh, I guess spies or diplomatic staff, Wangenheim, reported that Japanese wearing their uniforms were distributed in groups throughout Mexico in groups of six to ten men. According to the survey made by the English consulate, at least 1,000 young Japanese per week have emigrated to Mexico over the last three months. The consulate also claims to know the names of two Japanese generals who are allegedly among the immigrants. So Britain has Britain's intelligence network is is telling the U.S. that the Japanese are coming uh, to invade. But really, mm-hmm. and so J- Japan uh, and Germany, as I'll as I'll talk about a bit more, Germany has like a dream of fomenting this Jap- Japan Mexico alliance against the U.S. That's their that's their big that's their big move to try to get that going. So they have a they have a propaganda campaign that they run from 1911 to 1913 to try to have a lot of put out there a lot of rumors about this about a potential Japanese uh, Mexican alliance against America, and Americans do get upset enough that they say the kinds of things that Germany hopes will piss Mexico off. So there's a article in the Atlantic, not signed, where um, they write. The American author writes, if Mexico actually responds to this Japanese siren song, then we must take over Mexico. It is more than likely this will be our fate. We have preeminent interest there and we must and we shall protect them. So, <laughs> so yeah, so then Germany is really excited about this. Uh, the German military attache, uh, Herwarth von Bittenfeld, um, he basically says, look, you know, if, Jap- if Japan comes, what we really need to do is we should have a white country alliance against Mexico and Japan. Should there be any closing of ranks by the forces of white culture, this would be the equivalent of a triple alliance between Germany, England, and the United States. Everything else is a negligible quantity. He said it, the French words for it, which are apparently more fancy, uh, quantité négligeable, <laughs> and, and we will have to submit to, and we'll have to submit to it, meaning Japan and Mexico are, are irrelevant in the face of a powerful white alliance. United, these three powers can still confidently divide the world among themselves <clears throat> and place a distance between themselves and the upward striving colored peoples, which will last forever. Um, it's it's interesting to see how the Germans are trying to insert themselves because it's like the UK and the US don't need Germany to divide up the world. Actually, <laughs> they they've managed to do it all by themselves. And well, Germany's yeah. just like, you need us, you need us. Let us join the division of the world. <laughs> I don't know. I think the world wars kind of show that they do need Germany, or or that Germany can you know throw a a wrench into the works for yeah. sure. I like that. I like that last phrase though. The upward striving colored peoples. Yeah, we have to keep. Distancing. So they're lazy and they don't want to work, but they are upward striving. And they're gonna be upward striving forever, and we have <laughs> to have an alliance against them because otherwise uh, they're gonna overtake us. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a psychological study there too to be mm. done. Um, so Mexico doesn't 
uh, want this alliance, and neither does Japan. <laughs> so it's it's like uh, Japan <coughs> says that their primary interest in Mexico is, or in 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 this whole thing, is to keep the U.S. happy, uh, concentrate all its efforts to win the friendship of the United States. Um, Japan says the idea of an alliance against the U.S. is simply insane. And on the Mexican side, they say something like, look, the Japanese have neither money nor courage. <laughs> and we cannot rely on them. So that's not happening. Um, no issue there. So now there's Germany. And Germany is a big story here because Germany, uh, you know, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> right? They want to they wanna make nice with the U.S., but they want to have Mexico as a potential uh, ally against the u.s if things uh if it comes to that so there it's a really uh as usual with germany in this period completely confused uh incoherent policy as far as economic interests they have deutsche bank um and it's cats it, analyzes this uh as like you know the the british and the americans are interested in oil and railways um the that these are things these are assets they can protect through direct military occupation right mm -hmm. um D deutsche bank germany uh they have they have uh debt you know and so they need a government that can prioritize paying debt they need stability and uh, germany buys a lot of their manufacturers so they they have a totally different interest they want the government to be functional and uh you know, kind of right wing and, and and stuff. They don't want uh they they you know the way the U.S. and U.K. can afford quite a bit of instability in Mexico as long as they physically control the oil and rail. Mm -hmm. Germany doesn't have that, so Germany has a different kind of set of concerns. Uh, they well, can't what just they, what yeah. they should do is is do what the British are doing. Just do it under the American umbrella. Yeah, you know, let the Americans do the military intervention, and you just do your business. But they just can't. Yeah, <laughs> it just yeah. wrinkles. <laughs> yeah. And they have these schemes, right? They're just schemers. They're constantly trying to, yeah, they're trying to keep that reserve option of like Mexico invading America. Um, but there's a whole thing about how um, there's a whole drama between Germany and um, the U.S. Even under Porfirio Diaz, uh, even j before 1910. So Mexico, you know, to mil modernize your military, step one, or I don't know about step one, but step two or three at least, is to have foreign military instructors teach modern weapons techniques, etc. Right? right. So every, right. all the countries that tried to modernize their armies do this. So Porfirio doesn't do this, and the reason is partly, um, you know, lots of things. But like, uh, unlike the South American countries, Katz writes, Mexico called in no foreign instructors to implement modern techniques of organization and warfare. In fact, Diaz constantly reduced the military's share of the national budget. So he's afraid of like a, a, a officer rising up through the ranks and taking over, right? Like, the, like he did. Like he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So, so that's one. But then there's another one, which is uh, he he gets the sense that you can't ever catch up to the U.S. military. So all you're going to do is m antagonize the U.S. And by trying to catch up, you're going to 
you're going to force them to attack you before uh, before you're ready to defend yourself. So he's just like, why play this game? Start an arms race we can't win um, and call foreign instructors and pay them to get us just just to piss the U.S. off and have them invade. I think he also has a view of the army that's very uh, modern. He's very forward thinking. He recognizes <laughs> that there's no need for an army to fight the U.S. because we can't win. Yeah. So the only real use for the Mexican army is to fight against the Mexican people. Right. The rurales. And yeah, he does. He does create a pretty effective system for for domestic repression, although not effective enough. <laughs> no, no. Um, so page 28, Katz says the kind of modernization which a strong army needed would have required European instructors and strong links to European powers. Such military links could have provoked deep suspicions on the part of the United States. Right. So, and who would who would offer to train your officers? Uh, Germans? Yeah. And how would that go over? <laughs> no, he's right. He's right. Yeah. So Kaiser Wilhelm, so Porfirio Diaz's thing is like, we can't protect ourselves militarily, but if we have a whole bunch of Europeans with different business interests, then maybe they can sit around and and talk the U.S. out of doing something too, too dramatic. So that's his kind of plan for protecting Mexico is business links. Right. Um, and Kaiser Wilhelm at various points does hope to try to get German instructors in there. But the German ambassador to the U.S., who's heavily involved in this these debates, Speck von Sternberg, he says, look, it's too risky. If Germany helps Mexico, it would there would be a tremendous uproar in the easily aroused American character and a demand for retribution and revenge. The disadvantages of such an undertaking would far outweigh any benefits. So... Um, that's how the U.S., I mean, that's how Germany views it. It's obviously Germany is obsessed with the U.S. and what the U.S. is going to do here. Uh, so we might as well talk about what the U.S. is going to do here. <laughs> so uh, during the revolution, we talked a bit about what the U.S. does, right? They try to go and secure the oil areas, the ports. They occupy Veracruz. And then they start trying to pick the winner, you know, and they they there's a lot of threats and stuff. But for the or, most part, or dictate the Constitution or dictate the Constitution. Exactly. Exactly. Keep certain articles out of it. So the, but um, <clears throat> they have more, you know, they want more uh, than they than they're getting. And they kind of want to gradually encroach. I mean, half of the U.S. territory is. Mexico, and they won it through this kind of encroachment. So there's no reason for them to think, you know, why not keep, you know, why not keep going? Like, who knows what what else we could get if things go well. Um, there's a story that Gilly tells about the <laughs> Mexican response because the Mexicans are not, um, they're not, they're not going to be fooled by this again. <laughs> so there's a there's a lot of like very resigned like. Well, we can't beat them, but we're not going to we're not going to take this anymore. Um, So there's a story of Admiral Fletcher and General Candido Aguilar. And it's interesting because these two both become diplomats after this uh, after this encounter. And they're they continuously encounter each other. (laughs) But this seems to be their first encounter in late. I'm reading Gilly in late 1913 at the height of the struggle against Huerta, the constitutionalist general in Tuxpan. Candido Aguilar 
was involved in an incident with the U.S. Navy. As his troops moved into the Tuxpan oil region in Veracruz, U.S. Navy ships under the command of Admiral Fletcher were lying anchored off the island of Lobos. Fletcher sent the following message. To General Candido Aguilar, commander of the rebel forces occupying the oil zone of Tuxpan region, I am instructed by my government to inform you that if you do not leave the oil zone within 24 hours, I shall land U.S. troops to safeguard the lives and interests of American citizens and other nationals. So uh, Candido Aguilar replies, to Admiral Fletcher, I refer to your insolent note of yesterday. The life and interests of North Americans and other nationals have been, are, and will be fully safeguarded in the military zone under my command. Should the threat to land U.S. troops on Mexican soil be carried out, I shall be obliged to fight them, to burn the oil wells in the region of which I have charge, and to shoot all North Americans in the region who, in the meantime, are to be considered hostages. <laughs> So, uh, so Gilly says the landing, of course, did not happen. <laughs> so, um, so, but this this kind of thing happens again and again. In 1915, uh, President Woodrow Wilson, about whom we will be hearing much more, um, he wrote to the different sides in Mexico's uh, civil war and told them they have to either come to terms or the U.S. will be constrained to decide what means should be employed to help Mexico save herself. <laughs> so Carranza immediately says, uh, go to hell, basically. And Eufemio Zapata, Eufemio uh, Emiliano's brother, brother yeah. yeah, he says, uh, we are not afraid to defend our country. Even if the Americans send millions of soldiers, we will fight them one man against hundreds. We may have no army and no ammunition, but we have men who will face their bullets. So they're not um, they're not having it. Um, and Wilson considers various plans, according to Katz, one of which is the elimination of Carranza Villa and Zapata. Um, but instead, he opts for a conference. <laughs> Should we kill them all or should we have a conference? So uh, they has, he has a conference with what are called the ABCs, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile. Um, but Carranza basically blows off the whole conference. He doesn't care. He's winning militarily. And ultimately, Wilson decides he has to recognize Carranza in October 1915. Wow. that's a, Is that like the first reference to, you know, the American policy of assassinating Latin Americans? Uh, I was the first one I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. It's early. Yeah. It's just like, well, let's look at the options. There's another, uh, there's another option called, uh, the Canova plan. Uh, this is Leon Canova, the state department, Mexico desk, um, head. And he wants to install an, a descendant of the revolutionary general Agosto Iturbide, um, he wants to install Eduardo Iturbide who would win over the population with food aid. They would quickly give him a $500 million loan, and he, in return, would give them supervision of customs collection. <laughs> basically, what what is that? Egypt, right? Yeah. They just got that yeah. for Egypt. So it's basically the Egypt idea that Mexico becomes a financial protectorate of the U.S. They collect the money. Um, and Pancho Villa, I don't know how he heard about this, but he um, he's the one who put it out there that this there was this Canova plan. And uh, Carranza bought recognition by agreeing to the Canova plan. So Katz thinks this may have forced Carranza again to be more anti-U.S. than than he might have been. 
because of the pressure of Pancho Villa. Um, so we mentioned also that the punitive expedition, right, where uh, there's General Pershing and Patton is part of it. So the U.S. Uh, invades Mexico in 1916. They claim that all they're doing is trying to get Pancho Villa. But by the time they invaded, Pancho Villa had 500 men. And uh, and that, that was the beginning of 1916. And by October, Pancho Villa had 10,000 men under arms. So... Uh, it was backfiring in that sense, but also uh, Carranza just was not agreeing to anything. So Wilson was like, look, give me the right to go into Mexico whenever I want and I'll withdraw. And Carranza said no. Um, and then in June, there's another big incident where in the town of Carrizal, uh, Lieutenant Charles Boyd's uh, troops, American troops, are um, ask permission to General Felix Gomez uh, under Felix Gomez is a, a Mexican general under the command of Carranza. And uh, he says, can we pass through Carrizal as part of our punitive expedition? And Carranza has said, you are not to go past Carranza, Carrizal. This is our red line. Nobody goes past. No American goes past Carrizal. Uh, Boyd tries to go anyway. And there's a battle. And the battle, both Boyd and Gomez are killed. Um, but the Americans are defeated. Most of Boyd's soldiers are killed. The rest are captured. So Wilson gets really mad at this. How dare you uh, attack Shoot our at troops. us when we invade your country. <laughs> While we're trying to invade your country. So he's got a, he draws up a plan to occupy all of northern Mexico. Or he has one drawn up. But uh, there's a lot of opposition inside his government and like inside the U.S. establishment. Uh, so Carranza does a little face-saving thing where he lets all of Boyd's uh, Boyd's troops that he um, captured, he lets them go. Uh, and Wilson says, you know, uh, it, one day the American people will know that I d didn't go to, I only didn't go to Mexico because I need to be ready to to fight the Germans. Um, which is like, sure, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, he keeps offering Mexico the same deal, which is basically an ultimatum where he says, you know, just agree that we can come back whenever we want and we'll be fine. And Carranza says, no, uh, how about this? If if we're in hot pursuit of some American criminal, we'll be able to enter America up to 100 meters and vice versa. <laughs> so Wilson has a delegate tell him, tell Carranza, look, the president's patience is at an end, and if you don't want to cooperate with us, just say so. And Carranza's just like, um, well, Carranza's delegate uh, actually says, okay, he, he gets kind of scared um, and signs, and then he takes it to Carranza for ratification, and Carranza says, no! <laughs> I will only talk to you after you've unconditionally withdrawn. Period. So, uh, you know, this is all 1916. And so between at the very beginning of 1917, uh, over a period of about a week, Wilson just unilaterally withdraws. He was going to leave anyway, Dave. It was nothing to do with, uh, you know, the guerrilla resistance or Pancho Villa or anything. It was just, you know, he wanted it. He, he just, he did the mission accomplished. Pershing actually said it was like a mission accomplished thing, so. All right. <laughs> and then uh, I think we conclude with uh, the Zimmerman telegram, which we're going to bring back. Right, Dave, you were saying we have a lot to there's a lot to say about the Zimmerman telegram. Yeah. yeah. 
But this is the Mexican side of the Zimmerman telegram because the Zimmerman telegram was ultimately about Mexico. Uh, it, was, it ended up having some some other consequences. So what is the Zimmerman telegram? It's a proposal to arm Mexico to fight America uh, during World War. Well, you know, you know, in the war, like basically should America enter the war? Um Mexico will enter on Germany's side. And Germany also says in the clauses of the agreement are such that Germany won't make won't then make peace with America until the Mexicans make peace with America. So we're not going to leave you in the lurch. We're not going to have a separate peace. We're going to we're going to we're going to be with you to the end. So uh, so. Secretary of State Zimmerman tells the Budget Committee of the Reichstag the following. He says, it has often been asserted, and I can only agree, that the Mexicans are extremely courageous soldiers and the Americans, when they entered Mexico, had no success but were forced to withdraw. It is also known and has been confirmed to me from many sources that should America attempt to carry out a mop-up operation in Mexico, it would face a war of long duration and would encounter many difficulties. Mexico's hatred for America is well-founded and old. Of course, Mexico has no weapons in the modern sense, but the irregular bands are nonetheless adequately armed to create discomfort and unrest with the border states of America. Moreover, we are in a position to provide weapons and ammunition with U-boats, which should also be taken into account. So U-boats, Dave, submarines, basically, right? Yeah. So you- uh, I'm guessing that Zimmerman never met Von Haking's wife. <laughs> Maybe. Or He's got a very different impression. Extremely courageous. Extremely courageous, but also dumb. Dumber than a sack of hammers. Because uh, when when German counterparts say, you can't commit us to an alliance with Mexico, he says, look, I'm not committing us to an alliance with Mexico. I'm just telling them that we'll commit to an alliance and see what they think. Um, plus, I can also get Japan <laughs> to fight on their side. <laughs> um, oh so Katz subs it up as the following. He says, according to Zimmerman's plan, Carranza was to attack the United States with complete faith in the German alliance proposal, and Germany would then have simply left him to his fate, except in the unlikely event that Japan entered the alliance. In other words, the alliance proposal was in reality a large-scale deceptive maneuver in to incite Carranza into a suicidal attack on the United States. So it's well, on the one hand, it's not uh, like von Hiking's wife, but it is also pretty contemptuous of of uh, of the of the Mexicans. So they have the text written up as follows, um, and here's the text: We intend to begin unlimited U-boat warfare on February 1st. Attempts will nonetheless be made to keep America neutral. In the event that we fail in this effort, we propose an alliance with Mexico on the following basis. Joint pursuit of the war, joint conclusion of peace, substantial financial support and an agreement on our part for Mexico to reconquer its former territories in Texas, New Mexico and Arizona. 
Settlement on details left to your right, Honorable Excellency. Your Excellency shall present the above to the President in the strictest secrecy as soon as war with the United States has broken out, with the additional suggestion of offering Japan immediate entry into the alliance and simultaneously serving as mediators between us and Japan. Please inform the President that unlimited use of our U-boats now offers possibility of forcing England to negotiate peace within a few months. Confirm receipt, Zimmerman. So this is a telegram from Zimmerman to the German ambassador in Mexico. Yes. And here's the thing. We've got it written up. How do we get it there? (laughs) Because guess how telegrams go to Mexico from Europe? (laughs) They don't go directly. They go through the U.S. Oh. (laughs) And... Um, they're also intercepted by the UK. So Germany figures, hey, we've got this encryption, we've got these encrypted telegrams, but just like in World War II, the British have long since broken their code. (laughs) So the UK decrypts the Zimmerman telegram and immediately sends it to the United States. Um, Now, some uh, pro-German media, including Hearst, uh, in the media says that it's a fake telegram, but then Zimmerman himself confirms that it's real in <laughs> March 1917. <laughs> so the Americans' uh, reaction is to try to take it out on Mexico. So the American uh, envoy goes to Mexico and demands a denunciation of Germany from Carranza. Carranza's ice cold again. He just says, look, I've received no offer of an alliance from Germany. <laughs> I'm not going to break off relations with Germany. We're neutral in the war. And we have no reason uh, why Mexico's neutral attitude should push the United States to break off relations. This is Fletcher. I believe it's the same Admiral Fletcher from before. (laughs) And the person talking to him, I believe, is uh, initially Candido Aguilar, who's now working for Carranza in a diplomatic capacity. So when Fletcher pressed him on whether there was a proposal, Carranza said he'd received no proposal. For an alliance he could take no position on a proposal which had not been made to him <laughs> so again ice cold um there's a funny thing too where there's a debate uh between mexicans i suppose in secret about the telegram um the the idea of getting back texas arizona and new mexico carranza says i don't want them <laughs> It's nice to get territory back, but this territory happens to be full of Americans. (laughs) So one Mexican politician says, if we take those if we take those territories back, we would scarcely know whether we had annexed them or they had annexed us. Uh, Good point. (laughs) Imagine imagine taking like the same population again as (laughs) as Mexico has, but of uh, of Americans. Um, yeah, it's not a good idea. Yeah, George W. Bush could have been president of Mexico. <laughs> he would have been, too. You yeah. know he would have been. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, that's, um, that, that's the Zimmerman telegram. We are going to get back to the Zimmerman telegram. Um, I mostly just wanted to do this episode to tell the these little stories and these quotes uh, from the German politicians and the exchange between Fletcher and Aguilar and of course the Zimmerman telegram part one (laughs) any other thoughts on the great powers in Mexico no that was pretty good (laughs) yeah 
so the, the yeah we we kind of concluded the mexican revolution and um i think uh, i think it was an underrated revolution you know i think uh, i agree so now for real we're going back to europe briefly we got some other places to uh, to visit 